Hey guys, good morning. Thank you for joining us uh, today. There's a lot of different reasons that you may have joined us. We have people all over the world uh, that are watching. Uh, we want to let you know that we want to know you. Um, if we don't have a relationship with you in any way, uh, we want to hear about your story, what God's doing in your life. And a couple of ways that you can do that with us uh, is by going to our website at lifepointchurch.org um, where you can follow us on our social media accounts at our Facebook, um, Twitter, and Instagram. We have hope and, and pray that this sermon today uh, would help you in your relationship with Christ. Um, if you do not have a relationship with Christ, we want to help you uh, find one and, and know that uh, Jesus Christ is real. We want to help you in that. Part of having a relationship with Christ is being a part of a local congregation. Um, this today's sermon is not a substitute for biblical community. Um, it is just supplemental in your relationship. So we would hope that to see you um, at one of our gatherings on a Sunday morning at either 9 or 1030. Uh, so we really hope that we see you there soon. Uh, come see us and thanks again for, for joining us today. Uh, let's, uh, let's get going because we got work to do. We're really today, we are wrapping up. Uh, our, our theological portion of the book of Romans. Really, 9, 10, and 11, I've said this before, is the most theological portion in the entire Bible. I, I believe a lot of people say the same thing. Um, theology is the study of God. All right, So all Christians should be theologians, right? Not just certain people. All people should be studying God. So we're doing this uh, because if we study God, we know God more. When we know God more, then we love God more. And when we love God more, it leads to obedience and leads to more worship in our lives. That's why Jesus equated love um, with the obedience of the commandments. So those who will love me will obey. So studying the scripture is essential for the Christian, and we should all be theologians. That's what we've been doing in uh, the book of Romans, really, and it's been hard for some. I mean, it's, it's difficult, it's, it's weighty, it's thick. Uh, for some of you, it's been like a leathery steak from Waffle House. It's been tough to chew, uh, to process. Sometimes it doesn't go down, and you're just munching on it, and you're still processing it, and that's totally okay. Um, I remember... When I was a child, me and uh, my sisters were sitting at the breakfast table with my dad. My dad came in, and um, he put this big old box of chocolate donuts from smack in the middle of our table of all three of us and just sat it right there. And we were just standing there looking at that. I was like, yes, today's a good day. Uh, and he said, okay, here's the deal, guys. You cannot eat this, this, these donuts until you first eat a full bowl of cereal. Um, no dinner or no dessert before dinner kind of idea. Um, and, and we're like, okay, cool. So he brings out this box of shredded wheat. Uh, that is unsweetened, all right? For the child at my age, this is absolute uh, nightmare. This is the worst thing you could possibly do. You're eating crunch berries and count chocula, and shredded wheat comes out, and it is going to be tough. So we start grabbing the, 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 the sugar packets, and we're just like pouring it on top of the, of the things just to get to the dessert. That's all we want to do, get to the donuts. Um, it was hard to go down. No matter what we did, it still tasted like shredded wheat, all right? It was Tough to chew, tough to process. It's a good cereal. It's good for me, I know. I, I, I clearly knew that shredded wheat was better than crunch berries. But it was still hard to get down. Uh, and that is exactly what Romans is. It's good for us. We know it's good for us. It's like spiritual meat 
but it's very difficult to chew, difficult to digest, um, and, and we're just all over the place with that. So it's safe to do that today, um, but we know it is for our good. All right, that's what we've been doing. So if you've got your Bibles or your device, go to Romans chapter 11. Uh, we're going to close out in verses 28 through 33 um, today. Let me set this up. Uh, Muhammad Ali, greatest boxer of all time, uh, probably undeniably even. Some people would tell him that or he clearly proclaimed that himself, right? He was the greatest. You could not ignore Muhammad Ali. You either loved him or you hated him, but you could not ignore him. Uh, he got on a plane one time and he's getting ready to take off and the, the flight attendant comes up and said, Mr. Ali, you're going to need to put your seatbelt on. Um, he responded, says, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Uh, the flight attendant said, Superman don't need no plane either. All right. Uh, Louis the 14th, and back in the year 1714, uh, Louis the 14th died and he had planned this grand, uh, majestic funeral for his own self. He called himself Louis the Great, right? He, he proclaimed that in himself. So we had this whole big funeral service uh, to proclaim his name. Um, and it was a thinly uh, lit cathedral. Uh, and only light in the cathedral was a uh, was a candle sitting on top of a gold coffin that he had prepared. I mean, it was majestic. It was all this. And Louis thought he was the great. And right before the service started, the bishop comes over and he snuffs out the candle. And he said this, only God is great. Right? Only God is great. How amazing um, is that? And sometimes that is the most loving thing that people can do for us. They can tell us that we're not as great and not all that that we think we absolutely are, right? That's some of the most loving things to humble us. You're not all that. Uh, that is what Paul is going to say today in this climactic finish of chapter 11. He has reached the pinnacle of the mountain, and he's going to clearly declare this, that God is God and I am not. He's modeling, that's our bottom line today, he's modeling the response that we should have standing and finishing up this, this climactic finish of the book of Romans. Um, God has got him, we are not. I, I said uh, a few weeks ago when we were in the book of Romans, we were talking a lot about humility and not pride, and I was speaking and preaching through the warning against pride and the warning against arrogance, and I walked out of that service and I came out and said, hey, R.C., I just want to let you know, you don't have to worry about that with us. Uh, you clearly remind us every single week that we are not all that. So uh, uh, like a pastor, I quickly deflected that. And I'm like, that's just Romans, bro. Take it up with Paul. All right. So I didn't take responsibility for that. But uh, let's, uh, let's see what God has got to close out in this uh, amazing, amazing book today. Let's pray before we get into the work. Uh, Father, we, um, we have been enjoying... Uh, God, we've also been struggling in this book of Romans. Some, it is the, it is the most delightful words. Um, it is the warm blanket to the soul. God, it is securing. It is a great reminder of who you are. But God, there's also people that truly love the Lord with all their heart, mind, and soul that are still processing these things. Father, I pray that you show us and you model the proper response of all the things that we've been learning that Paul says do this. This is the desired response of reading your word. Let us just look, let us reflect, and let us mimic the behavior of Paul in this text, for it is for our good. We love you. In Christ's name, 
Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go there. But let me remind of the context. Paul's letter to Romans, the Roman church is filled with Jewish Christians and then uh, Gentile Christians, which are not Jewish Christians, all right? So you have anti-Jew and Jewish Christians in the church, and he's trying to warn against division amongst them. There's an ethnocentric pride that would begin to build up in them, and he wants to squash it and bring them all together as one common people. So let's look at what he says about these unbelieving Jews, because he's still talking to the Gentiles specifically. The Gentile Christians, his attention and his focus is to them. And he says this, As regards the gospel, they, the unbelieving Jews who've rejected their own Messiah, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I hear Paul summarizes what he's been teaching in 9, 10, 11 about about Israel. It's been a lot about Israel in the context. Um, And here are two things you need to understand about Israel. They have rejected the Messiah, but they've also been called according to God's election and his saving purposes. All right, There's two things that are, you're going to see threaded throughout this passage from the standpoint of the gospel. All right, Let's go back to the text. First, if you remember, he, he's now calling them enemies of the gospel, but it's for their sake. If you remember, God hardened the Jews to the gospel so they would not believe. He made them enemies of the gospel, so then Paul would take the gospel to the Gentiles. So he's saying the fact that they're enemies of the gospel, it's for your sake now. You got the gospel because they were enemies of it to begin with. So you are a benefactor of these Jews being enemies of the gospel. You today, as I've said this before, you are thankful that these Jews were enemies of the gospel because it's the means of how the gospel got to you. All right, he turned his affection away from the Jewish people, and then he turned them on you, Gentile Christians. Uh, so we are benefactors. Although they were enemies of the gospel, they are for our sake. We benefit from those things. Here's what we know about this text. Paul is saying that anyone who is hostile to the gospel, who is hostile to the message of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is an enemy of God, an enemy of the gospel. There is no such thing as someone today in this church or in the, in the world that is just unconvinced by the gospel. I need some more information. I'm kind of idle. I don't really know how I'm at on this just yet. Or um, I'm a friend of me. Sometimes I'm a friend of Jesus and sometimes I'm an enemy of it. The Bible says no. Jesus said that if you, you're either for me or against me, for those that are here today, I want to speak some truth to you for a moment. If you've not yet surrendered your life to Christ, you are an enemy of God. An enemy of God. That is not politically correct. It's just biblically correct. All right, That's very offensive uh, to the person who's not yet reconciled to God. The point is, is to lead you to a place of saying, oh, I'm an enemy of God. What do I do? I don't want to be an enemy of God. And then we share the gospel and we teach them and show them how they can be reconciled 
to God and they could change their position from being an enemy to a friend of God. Paul is telling us this so that we will take the gospel to those people who are enemies of the gospel. That's the desired response is to share the gospel with them. All right. I think that one of the most difficult things that we do as Christians today, uh, believers in the room, is trying to discern who, in fact, in our, in our culture, whether we live in the South or the Bible Belt or whatever, who actually is a brother who's struggling in their sanctification, and then who's actually someone who's never experienced regeneration to begin with? Right? Everyone's a Christian. Everybody goes around and says they're a Christian. And then we're sitting there like, I don't know if they are or not. I don't know if I should rebuke them and tell them about uh, what God's word says about their sin that they're walking in. Or do I share the gospel with them? I cannot tell. Guys, that's one of the hardest things that I do as a pastor and probably you as well. You don't know what to do. And I think more often times what we do, the default is that we try to go around to people who do not have regeneration And we try to teach them to act like a Christian. Here's what you need to do to become a Christian. You go to church. You pray. You confess. You repent. You stop doing stupid things. You love God. You pray. You read the Bible. You do all these things. When in fact, the person that you're talking to has an unregenerate heart. They're hard, stone heart. They're blind. They're deaf. They do not understand God. They think that they do, but they really don't. And you're just telling them how to act like a Christian. Listen, here's how to reconcile that. Here's how to fix that. Always start with the gospel. When you can't tell, man, I don't know if this person is a Christian or not. Then look, start with the gospel. Because here's the way that goes, okay? If it truly is a brother who's struggling in sanctification or a sister who's struggling in their sin, and I come at them with the gospel, that's going to be a beautiful thing for them to hear. Oh, thank you for reminding me of the gospel. Yeah, I know the gospel is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection of the cross. I'm just really struggling, but I know that Christ paid for my sins. I get it. He'll love that. They won't be offended by that at all. They'll receive it well. Now, if they respond with, you're telling me I'm not a Christian? Are you kidding me? I'm offended by that. That is a cold, hard heart. And that is a major red flag to the brotherhood sister who walking in sin, who have, someone's approaching them with the gospel. And that is a position, you, you'll find that out quickly, and then you know how to treat the soul. You don't try to tell them to act like a Christian when they're not Christians. You just preach the gospel to them, and you pray to God, would you save them? Would you wake them up to the gospel? And you trust in God with the power of salvation. So I, that's one of the toughest things that we do. But if we start with the gospel, and I don't mean sprinkle Jesus into the conversation. I mean the gospel, all right? And here, here I'm going to get into that because Paul's argument continues to go. He says this, all right? And they're not enemies anymore, but because of their election, they are loved for, for the sake of their fathers. All right, let's go back to that text and remember. This is the second thing about the unbelieving Jews. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, Here's what Paul is saying. He's speaking about the awakening in the future. We've been talking about that, that in in times before Christ returns, that God will call all of the elect Jews, every Jew that he has elected into salvation, that he will call them after the fullness of the Gentiles come into salvation, 
God elects and calls all the Jews. He brings them all in towards the end. Because of this reason, because of the covenant promise he had made to Abraham, the forefathers. He had made a covenant to Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is what it was. He says, I'm going to save all of spiritual Israel. Not ethnic Israel, spiritual Israel. So he keeps his covenant promise It's because he's the one who made the promise. It was not conditional upon their their disbelief right now. Now, if you think about these unbelieving Jews that he's now saying he is their beloved, they have spit in the face of God, they have rejected Christ, they hated Jesus, and they hated anybody that followed Jesus. And now he's saying they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Why in the world... Would they be beloved after what they've done to Jesus Christ? Why in the world would God still save them and love them? Here's why. Because God's gift of salvation is irrevocable. That's what the text reads. Go on to 29. The gift and the calling of God is irrevocable. He had called them. And it is a gift of salvation to the believing Israelites. It's irrevocable. That means God's not going to take it away. Because it was his to begin with in the first place. He said, I made the covenant promise. It wasn't dependent upon them. It's dependent upon me, and I keep my promises. For you today, this has huge implications. If you are a follower of Christ, God has elected you into his kingdom. And the gift and that calling is irrevocable. He will never, ever take it away from you. Whatever is in the Father's hands, no one will snatch it away. This ought to make you so, so happy, right? Happier than a UT fan today. This ought to make you overflow with praise and worship because if you just heard this correctly, you cannot lose your salvation because it was never dependent upon you to begin with. It wasn't conditional. It wasn't, if you do this, I'll save you. God said, nope, before the foundation of the world, I've elected you to believe. I will make you look like Jesus. You will be mine. You will respond to me because you are mine. And it is irrevocable. It is not a membership that will be taken away. A membership into the kingdom will never be revoked from you. That leads you to what? Praise, honor, Worship, not confusion, not doubt, not worry. For the believer, that is the intention behind knowing these things. It is secure. What God says, God always secures. Even though we fail God, He never fails us. That is great news for us. Let's keep going in the text in 30 through 32. For just as you, Gentile Christians, you were at one time disobedient to God, But now you've received mercy. Because of their disobedience, they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. It is only in the context of disobedience does mercy have any relevance in your entire life. Life. Four times Paul uses the comparison between disobedience and mercy. Disobedience, mercy, disobedience, mercy, disobedience, and mercy. Until you can understand that you are a disobedient person, 
You will never taste the mercy of God. Ever. That is a foundational point in the gospel that we share, that we live in, that we dwell in, that we share with others. If we don't know how bad we are, we will never ever know how bad we need to be saved, how bad and desperately we need a Savior. As I mentioned, what's happening here is that God is taking two people, two groups of people, the, the ethnic Jew and the Gentile Christian, or the, I'm sorry, the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian, and he's weaving them together, and he's saying this, you've all been disobedient. Just like you were disobedient, and I gave you mercy, now they are being disobedient, so I can show you mercy. God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may sh show mercy on all. All is all of his elect. All right, His promises are the people he's just chosen to save. This is a reality. We'll get into this in just a moment. But he's saying this, that God actually, his plan for saving people, he consigned us all to disobedience so that he could flex his godness. He could flex his mercy and that his name would be proclaimed. That was plan A the whole time. Jesus was not plan B. It wasn't reaction to Adam and Eve before the foundation of the world. They will be disobedient, and I will save them from their disobedience. I will show them mercy, but they first must taste their own disobedience. For you that are in Christ in the room today, this is how you come to a reconciled relationship with God. You can't come to God with anything else than I'm disobedient. I am, for my whole life, I have shaken my fist in rebellion to you. I've spit in your face, God. I've been disobedient since my conception, and I do not deserve your mercy. It is only in that place you can begin to understand what mercy is. You can't come to God with your problems. You can't come to God, give me a spouse, give me a, help me in my marriage, fix this problem. My, my mom has got cancer, take it away. Give me my needs, provide for me, God. I've, I'm offering up all these things. None of those things make any benefit to you whatsoever if you have not first laid down and acknowledged that you are disobedient to God and you do not deserve his mercy. That's supposed to be good news to you, by the way. That's supposed to be the greatest news to you because you don't have to be obedient in order to be saved by God. You have to say, I'm surrendering to the only one who is ever obedient, Jesus Christ. He will be my obedience. He will be my perfect righteousness. That's the whole position and the meaning behind the gospel. But we will not understand mercy if we do not first understand our disobedience. Think about how that plays in your evangelism. I, I, I always talk about how you should be sharing Christ with others. There should be someone in your life right now that you are investing in. If not, go find someone. You want to know how to reach them? How am I going to get this person uh, to follow Jesus Christ? You will not get them to surrender to Christ if you first don't tell them of how disobedient and rebellious they are because they won't understand that they need a savior. Oh, I'm sprinkling Jesus into the conversation. 
Jesus will give you life and joy and, 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 and he'll provide everything that you need if you'll just follow Jesus. He, he'll give you everything. Why do I need that? Why, why do I need that Jesus? I already got a great house, a great car, a, a great family. I got money. I got a job. Why do I need that? I already have that. But if I tell them, you are disobedient. You are deserving of God's judgment and his wrath. You are not deserving of his mercy. You've spit in the face of God your whole life. And you deserve this, but he will give you mercy. That's where we start with evangelism. I press in on that because that's not, that's not self-help. Right? You don't come at your, your brother and sister and, and you're like, well, I want to really make them feel good about themselves. and, uh, and I'm going to come in there and tell them how disobedient and rebellious they are. I might get jaw jacked, right? But listen, if you truly love them, if you really do, if you really are burdened for their soul, that's not a hateful thing to do to come at them. That's actually the most hateful thing to do is to not go at them. That is the most unloving thing to do is not tell them how rebellious they are and how they are deserving of God's judgment, not his mercy. If you really do, you think about that. I'm really concerned for their salvation, but I'm more concerned about their feelings than their soul. I don't want to offend them. Man, how unloving is that? Right? They may walk away, absolutely. But man, the ones that acknowledge and come to Christ, oh man, God is so good. He is amazing, and that is, the, that is the means of how he's designed to save the people who he's going to save. Some people, they're going to walk away. They're going to get ticked off. And some people, it'll be the best news they've ever heard in their entire life. We don't get to determine that. It's not the gift of the evangelist. It's not the gift of the pastor. It's not the gift of the message. It is God and God alone. That's the beauty of sharing Christ with boldness, is God's going to do what he's going to do. Now here also, let me, let me transition this, because now we're getting into... The climactic, uh, really, the, 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 finish, the, the finish line of the race, the pinnacle, the summit of the mountain is right here. It starts in verse 33. We have been chugging up this mountain. We have learned words like predestination, election, God choosing some, passing over others, God bringing great blessing out of cursing, and for some, it has been very confusing. And it flies in our face. It grates against us. We still have questions. That's okay. Still wrestle. Today, Paul is going to, in verse 33, tell us what our response should be. He said, These are the, this is the purpose of why I've been telling you all of these things. Now, whether you're here today and you're ready to respond in this way, you may not be. But it's the place you need to get to. Safe to struggle. But this is where we're going. What does Paul want us to know about all these things? What's the desired response? Let's see what he says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul says this, that our theology, all the things that we've learned in all 11 chapters, 
should lead us to white hot worship. He gets to this pinnacle and he bursts out with praise. Not confusion, not perplexed, not questioning, but praise. As I mentioned, you may not be here today, but listen, that's where you got to get to. You keep studying, you keep wrestling well, but this is where we're supposed to be and understanding all of these things. Praise, honor, glory. Oh, how unsearchable your ways are, God. I am not. God, you are God and I am not. Paul worships God, not because he's figured him out. He worships because he can't figure him out. Do you understand the difference between that? Yes, there's things that clearly Scripture speaks to, and there's things like sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We can't figure out. Paul worships regardless of the things he can figure out, the things he cannot. Worship, praise, honor. Paul has a very high view of God. He serves a big and mighty God, not a shallow God that cannot be followed. A God that can be figured out is a God that is not to be worshipped. I'm going to repeat that. If you can figure God out, he's not worthy of our worship because he's human. Martin Luther in the bondage of the will, he wrote a book against people who were championing the will of God. Man, you, you can't give God all this sovereignty. You can't raise God up that far. What about us and our choices and our decisions that we make? God surely can't do those things. Luther's response was this. Your thoughts on God are too human. That's what he said. You're too human. You're thinking that God is like a human. You're putting your brain like his, and you are thinking he's a human. He's not human. He's God. His ways are unsearchable. His ways are not your ways. You can't figure him out. You cannot comprehend. He's not a God to be figured out. He's a God to be worshipped. This is why Paul would not shut up about the gospel. He had a very high view of who God was and a very real perspective on who he was, right? He knew how big God was and how small that he was, so he would not shut up about the gospel everywhere he went. He had a boldness that was unmatched that should be modeled by us. They tried to do everything to get him to shut up, and he wouldn't shut up. Paul, we're going to throw you in prison. I consider the present sufferings of God nothing compared to future glory. Throw me in prison, I'll convert your guards. All right, okay. Well, uh, uh, Paul, we're going to kill you uh, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Uh, Paul, we're going to let you go free. That's freedom in Christ. I mean, the guy could not be stopped. They could not figure him out because he had a very high view of God. He had the proper high view of God and nothing could touch him. And many of our struggles, our anxieties, our problems, whatever you're dealing with today, as I'm wrestling, worries, anxieties, sins, struggles, pain, hardships, whatever it is, they generally can be related to a low view of God. A low view of God. Not a high view, but a low view of who God is. We try to put him in a box. We try to have human thoughts about God and why would he do 
this and why would he do that? And we, we try to talk back to God, right? In Romans 9.20 when Paul says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And that's exactly what we try to do. When we hear these things about predestination and election and God choosing some and passing over others, why would you do that? God, how does a loving God do that? We talk back to God as if we figured him out. No way, God. You can't do these things. It's not fair that you would do those things. Listen, we are nothing. God is God, and we are not. He is a God to be worshipped, not figured out. That's the whole thing of really as he's wrapping these things up. Now, making God really, really big and making you really, really small, that right there flies in, in the face of this generation. We love us some me, don't we? We love it. I can do anything. I can be anything I want to be. I can do whatever I want to do. My life is about me, my happiness, my thoughts. And this is telling me that God is God and I'm not. That flies in our face and that grates against us. That's why people refuse the gospel. That's why they're ticked off by the gospel because it tells them they're not God and God is. And that's why it's offensive. We must put ourselves in the right position. Shouldn't church make us feel good about ourselves? Right? You're up there, maybe some of you are thinking right now, man, this guy's really tearing me up. He's not, I don't feel really good about myself. Whoever told you that church was a place to make you feel good about yourself was wrong. Let me tell you why. This will make sense in a second. Church is not a place to make you feel good about yourself, it's a place that you go to learn about God. The Bible is to tell you not about how good you are. It's about to tell you who God is. Should you leave here feeling good on Sunday? Yes. But not about yourself. You should leave here feeling good about who God is. Right? So indirectly, yeah, you should feel good, but not about yourself. Once we understand the proper position that our identity is rooted in God and God alone and Christ alone, that overflows with joy in my heart, right? But it's never about me. It's not how good I am. When, when God was wrestling with Job, or Job was wrestling with God, I should say, God didn't hug Job and say, buddy, you can do this. Come on in, man. You got this. You are great, Job. No, he says, you are not great, Job. You're, in fact, very horrible. But I'm great, and I am in you. So you can do this because of Christ in you. That's the whole point of this. And that's, once again, that's not politically correct, but it is biblically correct. Now look at the things that Paul says about the attributes of God. He's at the pinnacle. He starts to explain or try to attempt with, our, with a finite mind of what it really means to be like God. He says the first thing, oh, the depth and the riches of God's wisdom and his knowledge. God is so rich, he's so deep that he cannot be Figured out. I said earlier, if he's a God that can be figured out, he's not a God to be worshipped. When we say God is omniscient, it means he's all-knowing. This knowledge that he has, he's all-knowing. That's the macro things and the micro things. Macro, he's all-knowing. He knows the, the, the galaxies upon the entire world. The sun, the moon, the stars. He knows exactly what they're doing at every second of the day. They're by his sovereign hand that they're moving. Not a leaf 
blows in the wind without God knowing about it. Macro things, micro things. He knows your cellular DNA. He knows your makeup. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows the day of your birth and the day of your death. That is omniscience. That is God and that is not us, right? He's simultaneously telling us who he is and telling us who we are. Knowing that God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, that is very comforting and it's also terrifying. Let me tell you why it's two things. It's very comforting to the believer because you know this, that God knew every single sin that you would ever commit, past, present, and future, and he still chose to save you. It didn't, nothing slipped past him. He didn't like he wouldn't see that one. 12 o'clock, midnight, when you're 18 in the bedroom with the lights out. He saw it all. I paid for it. I got this. That should be comforting to the believer, right? He still saved me. I didn't get past him. But it should also be terrifying to anyone who's trying to escape the penetrating gaze of God. You can't run. You can't hide. He's everywhere. He's all-knowing. He knows how disobedient we, in fact, are. The Christian, one of the marks of sanctification as we grow in Christ is we come to more knowledge about how disobedient we actually are, right? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. As you grow in Christ, you look back and you, you see your disobedience a lot more than you used to do. That's a gift of grace. It's a gift of grace. He knows every single thing. As I said, Paul worships God for the things that he knows and the things he doesn't know. He has not fully comprehended the sovereignty of God and responsibility of man. He didn't get it, and you just don't get it. Paul has said this, I understand there's two things. I believe they're true because God said it so, and I will let go, and I will not fight it. I will worship, and I will praise him. And that's where I, I hope and encourage you guys will get to. I really, really do. That's the design of this entire thing. If you are a skeptic by nature today, uh, let me tell you something, just a reality of our faith. Uh, we, we, we don't have it all figured out. There are things about God that we will never see on this side of glory. But that doesn't mean they're not true. It just means that we, we don't see it clearly, right? That's the whole idea. Now look at what else Paul says. He keeps going. In verses 34 through 35, he starts to ask some rhetorical questions, meaning they don't need to be answered. They're obvious answers. Who, he asks, who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's, who's been his counselor? Like who could, he could, who could even remotely try to act like they know God and what he's doing? Who could counsel God on anything? Like God is sitting up there right now and he's like, I don't really know, know what to do about this transgender bathroom thing. I'm really perplexed right now. What do y'all think I should do? Uh, we can't even figure out who's a man and who's a woman. I, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. All right, what do you all think I should do about North Korea? This, this heightened sensitivity of, of racism in our country, that God is just sitting there and he's waiting for the counsel of you and me to tell him what to do? Now, no one would say, I'm going to tell God what to do. But when we question God, when we question him, that's exactly what we are doing. Why would you do this, God? Why would you 
choose some pass over others? Why would you, uh, a loving God, do this? Why would you pour out judgment on people? That's exactly what we are doing. We are saying that we know better than God. And he says rightly in 920, as Paul said, who are you to answer back to God? Who are we to answer back to God? Then he quotes Job and he says this, Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? What do you give to a God who created all things, that all things are from him, to him, and for him? What do you give a God that already has everything? You give him nothing. You give him nothing. You give him nothing but praise and worship and honor. But you can't give him anything that he would owe you anything. No amount of money that you put into this basket today. No amount of church going. No amount of reading your Bible. No amount of praying is any offering to a God who already has everything. He is perfectly sustainable. He is sufficient. He doesn't lack in anything. God is not a needy man, a needy pauper standing on the side of the road, shaking a can, holding a sign saying, help me. He never needs anything from you or me. He's God. He has every single thing that he would possibly need. Does he allow us to delight in him? Yes, but he's not needy. He's not a needy God. When you understand that, you stop trying to please God with things that he's lacking. You think he's lacking. That puts us in our proper position. This is why we're justified by our faith and not our works. Because any act of work is an attempt to give to a God who's needy. He says, I'm not needy. I don't need anything. Look what he says in Psalm 50, 10 through 12. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, all of it. I know all the birds of the hills and all moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are Mine. You can't give a God anything because he already has it all. It's his. He is rich beyond our understanding. Let's close out in verse 36 itself. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. Underline that if you have your Bible. To him be glory forever. Amen. In three prepositions, Paul has just summed up the reason for existence. From God, through God, to God are all things. He's just said that God is the origin, He is the sustainer, and He is the reason behind everything. Not some things, everything. The source, the sustainer, and the purpose of why we exist. Why everything in this world exists. It exists for him and to bring him glory forever and ever. That mystical word that some of y'all kind of still wrestle with, what is the meaning of life? Don't ever question that ever, ever again in your life. It is the same definition. It is the same answer for every single person ever. 
The meaning of life is the glory of God. It's why you were created. It's why you exist. It is why you're, you're, you're sustaining a life today. And it's why you'll be with him in future glory. It's all for his glory. All things, not some things. Now here's, here's where this kind of gets to practicality. Because some people will say this. All things are, are you going to tell me that all things, all things are from God? All things are from God? Terrorism, racism, national disasters in our world, the greatest mysteries and the greatest tragedies. You going to tell me that those things are from God too? Yeah, I am. Because that's what that says right there. How in the world does God get glory out of that? No clue. I won't tell you that I can, but I know that's true. And I know on this side of glory, I may never fully understand that. That's the thing about our faith. Once again, if you're like, man, I can't go there. I can't believe that all things are for the glory of God. I can't see how my mom's cancer and, and, and disease and, and tumors. I don't see how that's for the glory of God. Listen, that's the thing about our, our faith. You have to trust God. And it doesn't mean that it's not true just because you don't believe it. It requires faith. All things renowned for the glory of God. That's what we are reading. Now, let me tell you the manifestation because here's Augustine paints this picture of this because this doesn't make sense to us, right? We don't see how all things are from God to God and, and from Him, all of those things. It's like uh, looking up against a stained glass window. You get your face up right against it and it just looks like a bunch of broken pieces. You can't make out what it is. You're like right here and you can't see. But if you step back, it becomes something that's very spectacular. It's amazing. You see the full picture of all of what it is. And that's what God's saying, that upon future glory, when you reach the kingdom, you'll be able to see the stained glass window and all its beauty and all its glory. But right now, you're up against it and you don't see it as a clear picture. We can't comprehend these things. How that plays out in your life of knowing that all things are through God. If you think that some things are from God, you will give him back some things. right? If you say, okay, God, you created the heavens, the galaxies, the stars, the cells, the animals, the uh, creation, uh, all those things. I'll give you that, God. But you didn't create all things. My kids, me and their mama made those. My job, I just sat in traffic on 24. I just put in the hours. That's my paycheck, not you, God. That money didn't come from you. That food on the table tonight, I came from KFC. All right, At KFC brought that food and we delivered. No, God, all things are not through you. Some things, yes, but not all things. If that is your mindset, you serve a shallow God. Your view of God is not the God of the Bible. He says all of those things came from him. So as I mentioned, the perverted response to thinking that God gave some things and not all things, you will give him some things, but not all things. I'll give you a little bit. I'll give you church. Can't have my money because I make the money there. Can't have my kids. Man, they're going to do what they want to do. Those little things, those little kids, they're going to make me look good. They're not really for you. They didn't come from you. They came from me and their mom, right? That, man, that has massive implications. To all things be the glory of God. God, your existence, 
your families, your own children were not meant to be little reflectors of you. They're meant to be little reflectors of the glory of God. That they would be beacons. God, God, God. That they would blink in a world that is so dark and that people would look at your kids and say, wow, God is magnificent. The money he's given you for his glory, your existence, your life, your purpose, your meaning, all for the glory of God. Man, that is what Paul has been doing in this entire book of Romans. It's putting God in his proper position and putting man in his proper one. That's the only place we'll ever get to where we'll be able to fully worship God and trust him with everything in our lives. The chief end, the chief existence for all men is for the praise and the glory of God. Let me pray for us and we'll get out of here. God, we uh, just marvel at you. We've reached the pinnacle. We're standing at the top. We're looking over um, of this mountain that we've been climbing and it's been difficult. It's been treacherous and it's been confusing at times. But God, we simply just say, we praise you. We honor you. You are God. We are not. You are unsearchable. Your ways are inscrutable. You are rich beyond measure. You are deep. You are not shallow. Everything is from you, to you, and for you. We declare that as a church today. And we love you for showing it to us. Got to pray for anyone today that's here that does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Pray they understand they could never be good enough. Pray you show them their disobedience so, God, you could bring them into a relationship with you. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.